five, four, six. Okay, okay, I believe you. What's this all about? I want you to write a picture for me. Beat. I'm afraid you're going to have to give me that number after all. This is just too good to be true. After he'd hung up, I turned to my wife, who was sitting beside me in the passenger seat. You'll never guess who that was. Who? Blank fucking blank. What did he want? He says he wants me to write a picture for him. Are you sure it wasn't a crank call? This was the summons I'd been waiting for, if not all my life, certainly for the past two and a half years. Having failed as a glossy magazine editor in New York, I was determined to make it as a screenwriter. Since returning from America in 2000, I'd made numerous attempts to break into the movie business, but, not surprisingly, none of these efforts had come to anything. Now, thanks to an extraordinary stroke of good fortune, I was being given a chance to play in the big leagues. Perhaps I should have been more wary. After all, the annals of Hollywood are full of cautionary tales about young writers being lured to Los Angeles by the prospect of easy money, only to spend the next forty years doing nothing. Ernest Hemingway said that a writer should come no closer to Hollywood than the Nevada-California state line, arranged to pick up his cheque at the border, and then turn round and head home. On the other hand, that cheque is nothing to sniff at. As one jaded screenwriter put it, they ruin your stories, they trample on your pride, they massacre your ideas. And what do you get for it? A fortune. It turned out the picture Blank wanted me to write was a biopic about a notorious 70s record producer. He had acquired the rights to this man's unofficial biography back in 1994 and already hired several other writers to have a crack at adapting it. The reason none of them had succeeded, at least not to Blank's satisfaction, is because this particular individual, like most legendary record producers, was a spectacularly unpleasant human being. He ripped off all his artists, drove a famous singer to suicide, and abandoned his only son. He had almost no redeeming qualities. On the face of it, it was simply impossible to tell his story in a way that wouldn't automatically alienate the audience. "'I'm the first to admit it. He's not a likable guy,' said Mr. Hollywood over lunch at the Hotel du Cap, forty-eight hours after he'd first contacted me. "'But if I'm going to make a movie about this guy's life, I have to find a way to make him sympathetic. When I read your book, I thought, if anyone can do it, this guy can, because you did it. At the end of your book, I liked you. I don't know why I liked you, but I did.' I mean, you do all this really dumb stuff, you fuck everything up, but when I got to the end, I liked you. That's why you're the perfect guy to write this picture. I mean, if you were able to make yourself likable, given all the horrible shit you pulled, you should be able to make this guy look like fucking Gandhi. When I got back to London, I immediately called Rob Long, the only person I know with any claims to being a Hollywood insider. I was introduced to him by William Cash, a fellow British journalist, on a trip to Los Angeles in 1992. Rob was only 27 at the time, but he was already an executive producer of Cheers, and I persuaded him to write a column about the difficulties of sustaining such a meteoric career for a magazine I was then editing. The columns were subsequently collected into a cult book, Conversations with My Agent, that quickly became required reading for anyone seeking to understand the business. Since then, Rob has gone on to have a very successful career as a sitcom producer, and at one stage served as an adjunct professor of screenwriting at the UCLA School of Film, Theatre and Television. Rob listened patiently while I offered my analysis of the situation. 
The problem was that no one had a clue about how to turn this misanthrope's life story into a commercial movie. Blank simply couldn't justify spending $64 million on it, the average cost of a Hollywood movie these days, when it so clearly wasn't going to be a hit. My job was to figure out a way to tell the story that, while remaining true to the source material, also rang bells at the box office. $64 million was the average cost of making a movie in 2004, according to the Motion Picture Association of America. Of this, $34 million is the average cost of marketing a film domestically. Blockbusters can cost even more to market, as much as $60 million domestically and $125 million worldwide. "'Completely wrong,' said Rob. "'You let him worry about how to make it commercial. That's his job. He's the producer. He wants to make it commercial. Easy. He puts a star in the picture. You don't have to worry about the picture being made. You should be worrying about your career as a writer.' You want to come out of this with a great writing sample, something that's going to get you hired on other movies. You want my opinion? Turn it into a comedy. After I hung up, I racked my brains, but the only way I could think of to make the story funny was to include myself as a character. As I envisaged it, the Schlockmeister would be about this completely unknown writer who's summoned out of the blue by this big Hollywood producer and then saddled with this absurdly difficult writing assignment. The story of the record producer could then be told as a film within a film, focusing on one of the numerous episodes in which he plucked some completely unknown band from obscurity, promised them the earth, and then discarded them as soon as the next band came along, not even bothering to pay their travel expenses. The picture, which would switch back and forth between the A story and the B story, would begin with me receiving a phone call from blank blank as I was heading to a wedding in Norfolk. "'He doesn't want to make a film about you,' said Rob when I told him this idea. In any case, it's been done. It's called adaptation. Listen, you're thinking way too much about this. Writing for the movies is easy. There are only two rules. Make sure something interesting happens on every page and make sure the character changes. The character has to change. Don't worry about the three-act structure or any of that bullshit. And for God's sake, don't read any of those goddamn screenwriting books. That's the kiss of death. The secret of success in this business is to not give people what they want. Over and over you give these guys what they want, they don't like it. It's hacky, they say. That's why he's interested in you. He's got twenty guys who can write commercial movies. He wants you to bring something new to the table. Rob called me back five minutes later. One more thing. Don't call it the Schlockmeister. That's the worst title I ever heard. Hi, are you waiting for blank? I snapped out of my reverie and looked up at one of the most beautiful faces I'd ever seen. This must be Lauren, the famous second assistant, I thought. Apparently the man I'd flown over five thousand miles to see employed supermodels to fetch his dry cleaning. This particular specimen didn't look a day over sixteen. "'Yes, I am, as a matter of fact,' I said. "'I don't suppose there's any chance of a coffee, is there?' She gave me a quizzical expression. "'White. No sugar,' I added. "'Thanks.' "'I'm Stacy,' she said, extending her hand. "'I'm the executive vice-president of production.' "'What were you expecting?' said Rob later. "'Some lesbian drill sergeant? "'They used to employ women like that back in the old days "'when the studios made fifty pictures a year. "'Now they employ women like Stacy. "'It's gotten to the point where I'm afraid to shake hands "'with a studio executive for fear of being picked up for child molestation.' 
It turned out that Stacy wasn't the executive vice president of production for the entire studio, just the shingle owned by blank blank. But it was still a pretty impressive job title for a woman who looked like she should be on the cover of Teen Vogue. She took me through to her office, explaining that it might be some time before I could get in to see her boss. "'He's rapping,' she said, "'and when he starts rapping, he loses all sense of time. "'He's rapping? Wow. Is that like a hobby or something?' She gave me a puzzled look. "'He's talking.' "'Talking?' Beat. "'So,' she said. "'I read your book. I had to, actually.' Apparently, she'd asked Mr. Hollywood to tell her about this project, and by way of response, he'd given her a copy of my book. "'I couldn't really understand why you kept doing such dumb stuff,' she said. "'I mean, you just kept on doing it, over and over and over. What's with that? It's like you had Tourette's or something.' "'She's clearly irritated by the fact that she wasn't present when you guys first talked about this thing,' explained Rob. "'That's all these girls have. They don't actually do anything.' They're just in the loop. After several minutes had elapsed, another supermodel came in and told us the big guy was now off the phone. Stacy leapt out of her chair and motioned for me to get up. Come on, come on. Clearly the boss didn't like to be kept waiting. The first thing I noticed on entering his office were the Oscars, four of them standing side by side in the fireplace. I had to fight the urge to pick one up. I wanted to know what it felt like to hold one in your hand. "'So where are we with this?' asked Mr. Hollywood. "'Is this a done deal?' "'Yes,' I said confidently. "'I think it's pretty much a done deal.' I regretted saying this as soon as the words came out of my mouth. The studio's Business Affairs Division had only just sent over the Writer Employment Agreement, a whopping 48-page document, and my agent hadn't had a chance to read it yet.